Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Sophie Verité. I am a doctoral researcher at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs of Leiden University, and today I'll be your host. As we are recording this podcast, most European countries are entering or have been facing strict lockdown measures in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only has this impacted the health of millions, but also has transformed the conduct of politics and international relations as exposed in the Hague Journal of Diplomacy's latest forum issue. Today, we will discuss the impact of this pandemic on diplomacy, specifically in the European Union, focusing on two essays from the COVID-19 forum issue. One is co-authored by Heidi Moore, Marie Curie Research Fellow at the University of Bristol, and the other is co-authored by myself. Hello, Heidi. Hello, Sophie. Thanks for having me on this podcast. It's great to have you. So um, let's get started with the paper that um, I co-authored with Joachim Kups and Cornelio Biola. Yeah, thanks, Sophie. Um, maybe a useful starting point here for our listeners is um, to briefly summarize your paper on disinformation, um, which really looks at this, this, this underlying phenomenon that, of course, has been with us for many years, but then puts it in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic um, and the very much increased need to, for us to actually reflect on how it impacts on diplomatic activity. Sophie, do you maybe want to give us a bit of, of a longer explanation why we should read your paper? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, so exactly, we look at a phenomenon that is everything, anything but new, it's disinformation. But indeed, we have all experienced some kind of disinformation during this pandemic. I can mention a few examples like the 5G hoax that we talk about in our paper, but also, you know, ingesting bleach <laughs> to get rid of the virus. There has been a lot of um, fake news, as, as some people call it. It's something that I think concerns us all. Um, so during the pandemic, we have observed an increase of that phenomenon. Um, and this is obviously dangerous because of the health hazard that uh, disinformation may constitute, but also because disinformation more generally promotes distrust in public institutions and amplify social instability. So this is what we look at in that paper. And um, something that we also uncovered while doing that research is that um, major powers such as China and Russia have really seized that moment of uncertainty and instability as an opportunity to engage in public diplomacy competition and seek geopolitical gains, for instance, in the Balkans in Europe. And this highlighted the very fine line that there is between disinformation and public diplomacy. So where, where does one stop and, and start? And um, it has showed a really strong struggle for influence in, in these strategic areas of Europe. Um, and this really also negatively impacted multilateralism and this could be having really bad consequences for Europe um, and its geoeconomic strength. Yeah. Thank um, you very much, Sophie. And uh, also, I have to say what I really enjoyed about your paper, that it uses disinformation as this intentional manipulation of information. So I think that was really something I took very much away. And I like that it assigned agency to this phenomenon. 
that you know it's not something that just happens so i think many of us just pretend in our everyday engagement with fake news and disinformation that it's just something that's out there but i think what i really liked about your paper is that it is intentional and there's agency as you're correctly saying especially when we look at diplomatic activity from from the from from third countries thank you um great so that that links to my question then um diplomatic activity you looked specifically at diplomatic activity within the european union council the council of ministers and how they managed to still continue to uh how they managed to continue negotiating during the pandemic and how they have been to change how to reorganize that what are the risks what are the implications for democracy so yeah could you tell us more about what motivated you to write that paper together with uh, nicholas wright yeah thank you very much I, I have to say it was a real pleasure to work on this on this piece with nick because it really helped us to reflect on what we know from council negotiations um and to think of how the lack of physical presence and physical opportunity to to negotiate how this really shapes uh, European policy making. And the starting point for us was really to, to also reflect on how COVID-19 has changed all of our lives. So we all learned to adapt um, our way of working, of interacting, of living at the moment. Um, and I think many of us also learned the lessons by now that we shouldn't just replicate what we have done face to face beforehand, but that we all very much forced to reflect on why we do what we do. And in the end, what we do in this piece, that we say, well, the same goes for our European diplomats and politicians uh, in Brussels and in the capitals of the member states. And what we try to do in this paper is that we provide a first snapshot of how the lack of physical proximity of face to face interactions in the end of not being able to meet in Brussels impacts European diplomatic interactions. So we use the Council of Ministers of the European Union and its adaptations to the physical restriction during the COVID-19 pandemic as an ideal case of saying, if you want to understand how important physical proximity is in diplomatic negotiations, looking at the Council of Ministers is really a great case study. And in the end, what we do is that um, we say, well, we actually, in, in negotiation theory, we have a good understanding of the salience of time and temporality. So we know about windows of opportunity, we know about the importance of repeated games. Um, but actually, physical presence as a concept is has not gained much of attention in, in our scholarly work. And we think that this is a, a good moment to actually kick off maybe a bit of a different research strand. Um, so although we all suffer from the current restrictions, it can actually be academically a really good opportunity to think about physical presence. Precisely. And, and what I really liked while reading your paper is how you bring up potential lessons for the future out of this incredible experience that we are all living and for diplomats this brings questions regarding transparency and also mobility so um, i liked how um, we can maybe take something positive out of all this crazy uh, negative uh, complications that we have seen so great um, yeah. Thank you, Sophie. I think that also, again, gives us now a great opportunity to actually come back maybe also to your paper on disinformation, saying, you know, what are the takeaways? So now looking back at the research that you did, what are your main lessons 
that you think we should be aware of? Yes. Um, in the paper that we wrote, uh, I think we had three key points uh, that we wanted to communicate. Um, the first one is that, first of all, the EU isn't really doing enough to combat disinformation. The measures that the EU has put in place so far, they focus on developing societal resilience through fact-checking and public diplomacy, and it mostly relies on voluntary abidance to non-binding rules, such as uh, code of practice on for online platforms. And this simply isn't enough anymore. Um, the second point that we're making is that COVID-19-related conspiracy theories are dangerous and extremely difficult to contain. Um, not only do they disrupt public health and social stability, as I already mentioned, but they also contribute to this epistemic cynicism, which has direct negative effects on the deliberative capacity of democratic systems, as well as their ability to respond in times of crisis. Um, and finally, the third point is that these internal challenges are really exacerbated by external actors who have put the EU's poor strategic communication on the spot by reinforcing these conspiracy theories and actively promoting their own narratives related to the pandemic in Europe. Um, these developments really should be taken seriously because they have important geopolitical implications uh, and economic implications for Europe. Um, what about you, Heidi? Could you tell us what were the key points of your paper? Yeah, uh, yeah again, thank you very much. Um, I guess the main aim for our paper was not so much to give definite answers, but really to take stock and propose kind of a research agenda in going forward by focusing on the salience of physical proximity again. And the way we were thinking about it is in the end in two terms, that on the one hand, we wanted to know what does physical proximity do to the mechanisms that are underlying cooperative bargaining? So not just uh, bargaining in, in, in situations where it's about, you know, who gets more or less, but really in this idea of finding common solutions. So, so how important is it there for our diplomats, for our politicians to be in the same room, in the same physical space? Uh, but we also, we also suggest in this paper that actually stopping there is not good enough but if we take this research agenda seriously we also have to ask the wider question of how this how this change in interaction actually influences european policy making in terms of governance transparency and legitimacy and that's really i think these two main themes that are running through our essay and maybe also just to summarize what are the three main takeaways um from from our research so we we also think that there's really a need to think a bit more about the use of technology in political interaction, not just in terms of COVID, uh, but also in terms of this ambition to make Europe greener uh, and less having less impact on the environment. So we also think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned of how we can use technology also in the future in, in terms of reducing the carbon footprint of our diplomats and our politicians. Um, so uh, and we think that there's a lot of, of asking, so how is it happening and what impact does it have on, on our diplomats? Um, and there again, we, we, we show that actually the European Union and the Council of Ministers is a great playground because we see a lot of variation between countries. We see some diplomats and some politicians who are much more adaptive and much more innovative, uh, whereas others are, are probably much more resilient 
um, and also a struggle to adapt uh, to this new way of working. Um, but at the same time, uh, we think that there's also a great discussion to be had of what does that mean for the training of our diplomats? Because we can assume that this was not the only disruption in the years to come. So also, how can we support the next generation of diplomats um, to be able to adapt the way they work to, 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 different, to different restrictions? So I think this is this one thing. So the use of technology for diplomacy, but also for political interaction. Uh, as, I, as I was already saying, I think there's also a great opportunity to look much more clearly on the necessary and sufficient conditions for cooperative bargaining, for problem solving, and for this compromise seeking mechanism that, that we are so familiar with in the Council of, of Ministers. And again, there we know from psychological research, also from IR research, that it's much more difficult to establish trust and empathy without face-to-face -face interaction. Again, we all are aware of this, that having our Zoom meetings is a necessary evil, but it's not the same. And what we want to, what we want to propose in this, in this essay is really like to think of, well, how, what best practices can we identify of how our diplomats or our politicians still try to get to this cooperative bargaining mechanisms without being in the same room. And then, of course, the last the last point that we that that we think is important to take away as as thinking much more creatively of how we negotiate and bargain in the European Union is really this 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 finding this balance between efficiency and efficiency and legitimacy. So I think in the last few months we heard a lot of our politicians trying to deliver for the citizens, trying to deliver solutions, but create you know getting access to the vaccine by managing uh, public health concerns. But in the long run, we also have to, to be reminded that, well, good governance is, governance is not just about efficiency, but it's also about transparency and accountability. And our suggestion would be to really also think of, by moving this diplomatic and political process online, what does it do to transparency and accountability? So we think a really important question to ask there. Okay, this is really interesting. Um, and I think both our papers really highlight how this crisis has exacerbated a lot of issues that are worth considering at the European Union level. So many issues that need more attention and need um, yeah, more work. So maybe this is what the positive aspect of this pandemic is, is that we've been facing our problems really with no not so much distractions and forced to deal with them mm -hmm. absolutely sophia fully agree with you and i think that's also a common takeaway from both of our papers although they look at bit at different issues that in the end in these extreme moments you really see some of these mechanisms and added value of diplomatic practices come very much to the fore and i think it's a great opportunity to research and to study these processes then because they make it much more visible um, of, of what matters in, in interactions. Um, but that brings me actually to, to a, a good next question for you, Sophie, because what I was wondering uh, when reading your paper, what's next? So where do, you, where do you want to go from here? Where do you see the future research that needs to be done on this information? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think there were two important aspects that were highlighted by our paper that would welcome a lot more research. Um, the first one is that, of course, there's a 
vast literature on disinformation and strategic communication and political communication. Um, but research on the impact of false news and propaganda and how to provide effective countermeasures to, to, to these actions is still limited. And um, there is more theory about it, more, um, more thinking than actual empirics and uh, evidence about it, especially in Europe. Because in the US, I feel like there was um, much more research because of the US elections, whereas in Europe, there was, um, okay, there was Brexit, and, and there has been a little bit about Brexit, but empirical studies are really lacking and they're crucial to understand how this phenomenon works because this is what will allow to then develop appropriate responses from the government side. Um, and they are great toolkits online, such as um, the EU versus disinformation website and the Comprop Navigator of the Oxford Internet Institute. They offer really great resources for a place to start. And um, yeah, I think that more empirical research will be beneficial. Um, and then the second uh, point for the future, I think is this blurring distinction between disinformation and public diplomacy that I was talking about. Um, because what are the implications of this growing phenomenon, both in theoretical terms and in practical terms? What does this mean for the EU? Because the EU is typically in this position as a normative power or normative power wannabe and uh, with this moral authority and obviously would never um, engage in disinformation, whereas you have authoritarian states which clearly don't uh, don't stop there. So um, yeah, this distinction is becoming increasingly blurry and we were wondering what, what does this mean for um, for research and for practice in this regard. Heidi, could you tell us more about the avenues for further research in, in your paper? What, what does this mean for the future mm -hmm. of research? Yeah, thank you very much, Sophie. And I think some, some of the themes are again quite common to also your reflection. So I think especially this blurring the lines um, between different subdisciplines is also, I think, something that, that was very much on our mind. And I think in terms of, of, of future research needs, of course, there are many, but I might want to highlight maybe three. And the first one is really like that we know, for example, um, from the research on digital diplomacy and public diplomacy about, again, the salience of face-to-face -face interaction. And there's really interesting research that I would very much recommend by Marcus Holmes and Nicholas Wheeler about social cues that our negotiators or diplomats and our politicians give to each other. In, in, in meeting in rooms and having the opportunity also sometimes to move from formal to informal negotiations. But I think especially in multilateral settings, the question still very much remains of how do diplomats and politicians then adapt the way they work. And I think again here, again, the European Union can be a great case study simply because of the richness of the different diplomatic and administrative cultures that we are seeing in Europe. And they are kind of a great laboratorium for more empirical research. But I think also for, for more quantitative approaches to give us a kind of a sense of a mapping of, of what we see. So I think we need really a, 
a rich methodological approach to these questions because they will ask slightly different questions. So there's, there's I think, a need for care carefully drafted qualitative, nitty-gritty research that really traces the processes and the mechanisms and that gives you a better idea of how these diplomatic mechanisms actually work and adapt. Um, but I also think there's, there's, there's the need to, to really also quantitatively map the big picture of what we are seeing. So I think there are great opportunities, uh, but also a lot of empirical work um, that, that needs to be done. The second further research that I think this current episode can really inspire is that I think we need a stronger reminder of how cooperation works. So I think we all use the word cooperation quite often without actually reflecting of what tools and ingredients it needs. And I think there again, the current situation can be a great reminder that cooperation and cooperative bargaining are not a zero-sum game. But they need political leadership, they need political understanding for how to foster meaningful compromises. And I think, again, my emphasis will be on compromising. And what I find so fascinating in when, when, when coming from, from the EU politics environment is really that sometimes compromise is the dirty word. You know, oh, the EU compromised again. It's, it's something that is very negatively connotated. But actually, I think there's a lot of work that we can do in saying, well, but does cooperation work without compromising? And how, how are the two related? Uh, just to give you a current example, in, in the common phone and security policy, everyone keeps talking about, should the EU, use, should the EU move to qualified majority voting? Should, should member states be able to outvote a member state who doesn't want to support a CFSP decision? And this, in the end, makes the EU not having a stand on foreign policy at some times. But there are only a few who actually ask the most silent question, salient question, in my view, of what it actually means for the European project, but also for the member states and the citizens. So what does it mean that you only use qualified majority in voting instead of having everyone on board? And again, I think here, the current, the current policy process, which is very much extreme, as you were already mentioning, I think can really give us good indications to really reflect on what is cooperation. Maybe the third theme that I think is, is really useful to think about. And again, I think it comes back to, to also the, this complexity that you were emphasizing, Sophie, in your work is that I think we have to do more research on the blurring lines between politics, society, and diplomatic steering. So I think there, again, the pandemic can be a great opportunity. Uh, but there are also other, other themes, like, for example, the European Green Deal, where I think many of the lessons uh, will be able uh, to, to provide uh, a way forward. So I really think we have to take this, 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 this major societal implications that some of these diplomatic interactions and political choices have much more seri seriously. And I think sometimes I feel like we as researchers, we live in our little echo chambers. Um, and, you know, we are very much <laughs> like our societies forced to become very strong experts in a very narrow field. But that also means that sometimes you're missing the big picture and it's sometimes very difficult to put all the different parts of the puzzle together. And I think this is really a great chance also here to say, well, you know, we need for some of the big solutions nowadays, we need more dialogue between citizens, stakeholders and politicians. Again, I think the European Green Deal is a great example there. Um, but again, also the pandemic shows us that you can't make political decisions without economic considerations 
or societal implications. So I think these are actually great moments to think of how do our policy fields intertwine, but also what does that mean for us as researchers in terms of working really interdisciplinary and not just using the label. Um, how do you think that this shift to the digital milieu has impacted the ability of EU actors and EU diplomats to compromise? Do you think that there was any link between that? I mean, again, I think what we can see is that on the one hand, of course, there's the, the short term implications. So many of the policy process in the European Union, of course, were on their way already. And the actors involved, they know each other, they're familiar with each other, and they moved now their, their interaction online if need be. So the point that we're also making in the essay that probably we also have to distinguish between, you know, finishing what has already been started and the idea of new policy initiatives. Maybe one more point that I find really interesting in, in this compromise seeking and um, idea and this, also this idea of qualified majority voting, I still see that many people struggle with our struggle in understanding that the European Union is not a state and it is not an international organization, but it's a very peculiar negotiation platform mm -hmm. uh, where we have citizens, we have states, you have institutions. But again, I think that makes it so fascinating for diplomacy because it really goes to this idea that diplomacy is not about gatekeeping anymore, but it's about creating networks and providing policy solutions in a proactive manner. And I think that's also something that comes back very much in your paper on disinformation, that it's not about a hierarchical structure that you know tells everyone what to think, but in the end to empower different actors, state and non-state actors, to be responsible and also reflective in the way they interact and use information. Um, I think you know your paper is great in, in giving us a lot of things to think about in the academic terms in how we research diplomacy also in the future how we research especially public diplomacy efforts um but maybe also to consider that some of our listeners might not necessarily be on the academic track but come much more from practice um what would you think are the three takeaways that practitioners should should take away from your paper on disinformation mm, indeed there is there is a lot if not more <laughs> in the practical terms um, to take away from, from this paper that we wrote. Um, the first one is that STRATCOM policy right now at the EU level is relying a lot on uh, the will of member states and the will of online platforms to be nice and comply. But uh, this, this has its limits. Um, so it requires really a lot more binding rules and stricter regulations in order to be effective. And we know this is a recurrent issue um, within the EU, but in this case, online platforms have actually voiced their, their, their expectations in that regard. And the CEO of Facebook himself, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg um, asked if the EU could have more uh, strict regulations with regard to online platforms because they themselves found themselves in a place where they they're stuck between different priorities and um, if there is something that is imposed on them then it kind of eases that choice for them um, to to put in place measures and and restrictions on online platforms that would 
decrease the impact of disinformation, the negative impact of disinformation. Um, and this is really also an, an opportunity for the European Union to design a, a very effective online governance framework um, and to take the lead in this regard and really to follow up on the expectations not only of online platforms but also EU citizens who have been waiting for that. Um, the second point um, that can be a good takeaway for practitioners is that the EU really needs to step, to step up its counter disinformation policies to offset potential long-term effects. So, so far it has um, put in place a lot of systematic measures um, to increase media literacy, education, uh, education and, and journalism. These need to be, of course, increased and furthered, but also they need to be supplemented with more proactive measures that debunk disinformation before it actually has the time and the chance to impact um, the public and to have public diplomacy that is effective and assertive, especially when we know that there are actors such as Russia and China, which do not shy away from having a very assertive public diplomacy in the EU's strategic neighborhood. And um, the final takeaway for practitioners that was highlighted in this paper was, is that the EU really needs to confront these external influence campaigns, because so far the EU has been blinded by them and kind of put in a, you know, when the rabbit is caught in the light of the car. Um, <laughs> because this really is threatening for the EU, um, not only for its health provisions, but also for its economic recovery, recovery and its geoeconomic strength. This strategic neighborhood where Russia and China are, are playing to, to have more influence is really important for, for the future of the European Union. Um, so it needs to develop more uh, tailored strategies that take into account these recent developments. Um, and they also need to follow up on this lack of global leadership. Again, this is a great opportunity for the EU to take the lead and take this crisis as an opportunity for the EU to assert itself as a global leader uh, in providing leadership in these critical times. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. I think three incredibly valuable points um, that of course are very important for practitioners, but I think can also be um, a great agenda for any, any ministry, any foreign service that wants to do a reflection day, the role of states and how do they sit next to non-state actors, this idea of, you know, regulation doesn't need to be bad, but it's also about creating a framework and a level playing field. Um, but also this, this idea that, well, nowadays, it's nice if our diplomats do something, but actually for state action to be really effective, it needs internal and external considerations at the same time. So you need to train your societies, but of course also um, do things um, on the foreign policy platform. And I think then the last point that very much fits in the current European discussion on power, so this geopolitical rediscovery of power, that maybe we should not necessarily care if it's power, but it's really about influencing and showing leadership. So I think there also, again, your, your research and disinformation is a great case study um, on what it means 
to be a leader in today's world. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there is there is a lot of work <laughs> on that <laughs> to be done. Um, what about your paper, Heidi? Uh, what would you say were the key takeaways for practitioners? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, you know, it's it's an academic essay. And I think despite it being more about, you know, what are the research agendas that we, we think uh, could really profit from, from this current time and this idea in physical proximity, we still hope that it, it provides some takeaways for practitioners. And again, I think the first one is really to also encourage practitioners um, to sometimes find moments in their very busy schedules to reflect uh, on why they do what they do. And of course, we know that, especially in diplomatic circles, there are some very experienced professionals who, of course, do this on, on a regular basis. But I think there's also an opportunity for individuals to engage in this reflection, but maybe also for institutions, also for, for ministries, for ministries, uh, to really think of, okay, what lessons can we take away? And again, I think it's not only for diplomats and, and policymakers, but I think generally, the current time was a great way also on a positive side to reflect the way we interact. And I think if, if this can be institutionalized and really considered of what are the positive mechanisms that we have been developing throughout the last months that we maybe want to emphasize a bit more and keep, I think this, is, this should be a, a great way to move forward. So one of the takeaways for practitioners would really, you know, find your moments of reflection because I think they are very crucial tools to learn of how to do things maybe differently and better in the future. Related to this, I think, uh, what I think is also very important, of course, that we not all try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and you see that I think sometimes also a bit in the diplomatic reforms that we see happen in the capitals, that maybe we need more dialogue in exchanging best practices. Um, of course, all our diplomatic services, our countries are quite unique in where they're coming from and how they do things and how they fit into state structures. But especially in our networked world, uh, I think there are some, just some things that we can learn from each other and we can be inspired from each other. But it means that you need these moments where you actually, again, take a step back and think of what is it actually that we value and we found worked really well. So I think, again, the second tip would really be talk with your colleagues and exchange best practices. And I think the third point that the current crisis really highlighted and that I hope practitioners are sometimes thinking about is really of, you know, how do you find this healthy balance between tradition and innovation? And that's really something I think also in the current times, of course, we all try to innovate, to do things differently. But I think there's also a place to think of what are the things that we did already well and that are part of who we want to be as diplomatic actors, as political actors, as society. And how do we want to emphasize those, even in a world that keeps changing and that asks us to adapt? So I think, again, this, this aim for healthy balance between tradition and innovation is really an important issue that I hope our practitioners find some time to reflect upon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these reflective points, um, I think, brings it, bring us nicely to the conclusion of this, this episode, which um, in which I will try to summarize the common points of our, of our paper, which, as you said already, ha joined in, in so many different ways. Um, the first one is that really COVID-19 has 
potential long-term consequences for diplomacy in Europe. In the case of your paper, it highlights the potential lessons for more sustainable diplomacy and more transparent diplomacy and also compromise. How do we compromise um, after this incredible experience? And then also, what are the lessons for a more systemic strategic communication at the EU level? Because the pandemic has highlighted the shortcomings like nothing before. And then the second point uh, that I found we, we had in common in these papers was that this diplomatic changes triggered by the pandemic really have created opportunities for geopolitical shifts and potential advantages. In the case of the EU Council negotiations, um, as you say in your paper, some member states are keener to take back control whenever they have the chance. And then in the case of disinformation, it really has shown that some major powers are really ready to fight for the strategic neighbors of the EU and to influence them and, and hopefully to have that influence um, spill over the borders of the European Union. So, yes, I think that there are a lot of potential long-term reflections that we can have after this pandemic for diplomacy in Europe. And instead of seeing that as a negative consequence, I think that instead it really shows the opportunities for positive change. Uh, what do you think, Heidi? Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely agree with you. So I think where we are at the moment is to really reflect on the impact of the pandemic and COVID on diplomacy. But actually, and here again, I want to congratulate also the editors of the of the forum of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy. I think they did a great job in bringing different topics together. But I think what they also managed to show is that diplomacy is relevant. The diplomatic studies are more needed than ever before. I think they also showed that diplomacy is exciting, but also that it's very complex because you can't see diplomacy separated from politics or geopolitics anymore. And of course, I think one of, of the big challenges, but also opportunities for us is not to to try and unravel these complexities and try to see how we can navigate in this complex world also in the future. Great. I think that's a great concluding note uh, to finish the po this podcast episode. Um, I'm going to thank again the audience for listening to this podcast. Um, feel free to browse through your platform of choice for more episodes and do not hesitate to share and review the podcast if you enjoyed it. That's it from us. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.